0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, your brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, I've got an opening quiz for you here this morning. Uh, What is the largest desert in the world? You can holler it out. We don't need hands. What was it? Antarctica is 100% correct. Yes. What is the biggest desert that we usually think of in the world? Sahara. Okay, yeah. So I was trying to see, you guys are, you're like a step above on sharpness factor. So most of the time, the Saharan Desert is what people think of. When you think of desert, maybe Saharan Desert, I think, usually comes to mind. But in truth, yeah, Antarctica is the largest desert in our world. So I am not going to talk about Antarctica because it's just cold. And, but we are going to talk about the Saharan Desert today. Uh, it's, it's a place that is absolutely inhospitable. I've got a few slides for you here. Uh, maybe a few pictures of the Sahara. There it is. Uh, Saharan Desert is, is about the size of the U.S. So if, you're, if you like spatial things, geography like I do, uh, if you can picture the Saharan Desert, is about the size of the U.S. Uh, and, and yet, most of it looks just like this. It's incredibly inhospitable, right? Uh, there's only two million people that live in the entire Saharan Desert. And in large part, they're nomadic. Uh, such as these guys, so kind of crossing back and forth uh, through it. Uh, it's more of a necessity than a place where you would necessarily live, right? So when we think maybe traditionally of what a desert landscape looks like, I think Saharan desert is maybe the first one that comes to mind. And life is hard, right? Things simply simply do not live there, or at least don't live there for very long, right? So it's an incredibly huge place, but death rains. Uh, About 2006, kind of a worrying thing started to happen with the Saharan desert. So the uh, continent of Africa and the northern countries of Africa uh, would regularly kind of keep tracks of the Saharan desert. Uh, It's just a place that in large part was maybe thought to be wasted land, right? Nothing can happen there. People can't live there. You just have to get across it, hopefully flying, maybe on camels, but that's about it, right? So they keep pretty good tracks on the Saharan Desert, and they noticed a worrying trend that was happening. The Saharan Desert was actually expanding. So it was getting bigger, right? Uh, and, And specifically, the worrying part of this was that the Saharan Desert was expanding South. So, if you can picture the continent of Africa, Saharan Desert was expanding south. Now, that was a problem if you lived in the northern edge of of Africa there, right? Because every single day, this Saharan Desert, this place of death, was creeping and taking up more and more of your acreage, right? more and more of your cropland, more and more of the places that you lived in, more and more of the places that could produce food and keep you alive and sustain cities and villages. And so obviously they were a little bit worried, right? They said, okay, we're, we're losing property, we're losing cities, we're losing villages, and there's got to be a way to stop this Saharan desert, this, this region of death, from kind of gobbling up the places that we love and the places we live. So in 2007, they all got together, all these North African countries, and decided on a plan to kind of battle back against the Saharan desert. And it's pretty audacious. The plan they came up with, they have a a name for it. They call it the Green Wall. They realized they couldn't necessarily stop the desert, but they could most certainly slow it down. And here's what they realized. Death produces death, as they had seen in the Saharan desert. But they also knew something else was true. They knew that life produces life. And so all of those northern countries decided uh, wholeheartedly to start planting trees along that northern edge. Because what does a tree do? If it gets enough water, it will naturally produce more life. And so they began to do that. They call it the Green Wall. Uh, you can see a little bit of it here. It's a little bit washed out. But on the right, you can see all the trees that are planted. On the left, you can see that the Sahara is kind of making its way in. Um, you can even see it from space. So if you go home tonight, you can Google the green wall and, and Sahara. And you can see exactly where death reigns and where life exists. Right? So their goal is to plant life because life produces life. And that's the only way that they figured they could beat back the creeping death of the Saharan desert. Now, uh, is, is it going to work? I, it's yet to be seen. We don't know quite yet. But they've literally planted billions and billions of trees. And if those trees get enough of what they need, they will produce more trees, right? But I think it's a pretty good illustration for us today as we look at the prophet Ezekiel from the Old Testament. Uh, he, was, he was preaching to a people, to the Israelites, Uh, who felt that they had been cut off, who felt that there was really no hope for them in their life. But Ezekiel preaches a message of hope and of life. And so our theme today is Life Giver, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to look into the, the, the reality that death produces death, but in Christ and in you, life produces life. Now, before we jump into our text this morning, uh, we've got to set the scene just a little bit for what is happening in that Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Uh, and I don't know that that's a book that you normally go home and just read in devotional format. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I was just reading Ezekiel this morning, right? It's, it's on, my, on my, my bed table, right? Uh, it's, it's maybe not uh, because if you go through the books of the Old Testament and you can do, actually do this, do this week do that this week. Go into the book of Ezekiel and, and just skim through and read some of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's in some parts one of the roughest books that you'll find in the Bible. Oh, I should say it this way. It's got some of the roughest language that you will find in the Bible, okay? Uh, and to a large degree, that's based on who Ezekiel was preaching to and the nature of his ministry during that time. So, uh, but we, that's where we kind of have to understand exactly what was happening. Ezekiel was a prophet to the southern tribes of Israel. So by the time that Ezekiel is preaching and we read our text here today, uh, the country of Israel, the nation of Israel had been in large part kind of decimated, split up. The ten northern tribes had already been conquered. They had already been shipped off to Babylon. Uh, They were countries no longer. The remaining two tribes were in the south. Those were still hanging on by a thread, okay? So those remaining two tribes were there and in the middle of that was a place we, Noah's Jerusalem, right? So the capital city was still there. And in large part, many of those Israelites were still hoping, hoping upon hope that, that this city would never, ever fall. I'd argue maybe in some ways they were even a little bit cocky, right? That because they had Jewish blood running through their veins, because they had the Old Testament, because they had Abraham and Moses, because they were this people that surely Jerusalem would never fall. And so for the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel, he is speaking to a people who are a little bit arrogant. And guess what? His language mirrors that. And so some of his language is a little bit rough. He's speaking to a people who in large part had abandoned God but still felt that they were owed things to God and that because of their national status, surely God would not allow them to fall and to be conquered, right? And what does Ezekiel say to them? If you think you're standing firm, check yourself. Chapters 1 through 33, that's exactly what Ezekiel is talking about. But that's not the chapter that we're reading here today because about chapter 33, something momentous happened within that ministry and for the nation of Israel. You can guess what happened. The very thing that the Israelites thought God would never do this to us, he would never let this happen to our city of Jerusalem and to the temple. About chapter 33 of Ezekiel in 586 B.C., that very thing happened. The country was finally completely overrun. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and the remaining two tribes and they shipped off every last Israelite to the country of Babylon, right? That's where Ezekiel's ministry changes a little bit. They went from being to some degree arrogant to the extreme opposite. The Israelite people now felt that they had no hope left. And you can maybe picture how they felt. They had lost their land, they'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their temple, they'd lost their city, they'd lost their nationality, they had nothing left. Their their identity, their national identity as a people, and even individually, had all been stripped away. They were merely slaves in a foreign country called Babylon. Everything was gone, and so you you can almost feel viscerally how these Israelites felt. Our text says they claim we are cut off, our hope is gone. Their hearts were broken. Physically, they were broken. The death that they had seen in this conquering had probably just been incredible. And so that's why Ezekiel's message changes. Ezekiel's message is a message of hope and of life. And Let me jump into that for you here. We're going to look at three different things today. We're going to look at death, um, which is good for us to do, and we may, as Maybe you think that's a little bit morbid, like I showed up on Sunday morning and pastor's just going to talk about death. We're going to talk about death uh, because the thing about Christianity is we never shy away from that. God is incredibly nuanced about our life and your lives. He does not shy away from life or from death or all of the things that come in the package of human existence, right? So God doesn't shy away from that, so we're not going to do that either. We're going to look at death, but we're also going to look at life specifically in Christ. We're even going to go a step beyond that. We're going to talk about living, right? And how we live our lives with Christ in us. So, uh, the Israelites made this exclamation. They say, Our bones are are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. You can almost feel their pain a little bit. In fact, some of this is almost echoed in, in certain psalms and other Old Testament books, Right? Uh, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. If you've ever gone out into the desert, uh, I grew up in Grand Junction on the western slope and most everything that was not irrigated by the Colorado River was simply death and desert and it was not uncommon. In fact, I was hunting this, the start of this week uh, and as you're hunting and as you're walking around, it is not uncommon for you to find dry bones just sitting there, right? That's the picture that the Israelites had of themselves spiritually and Physically, And so you can see that hope is, is completely gone. We sometimes think about that. There, there is such a thing as something worse than death, isn't there? I think this is it. There is something worse than death. It's feeling as though, as though you have to live without hope. As though you are in almost a place of stasis, right? Where you would almost rather be dead, but you can't even quite get there yet. I think that's the picture spiritually and emotionally and physically that these Israelites were feeling at that time. Uh, uh, That that death would maybe have been a welcome sight. And yet instead, they're just in this stasis point. Their bones are dried up. They are toiling for a foreign nation in a foreign country. They do not have God with them. They do not have the place that they love with them. They're just simply in stasis, lost without hope. I like think you've probably felt that before as well. Maybe not physically, like the Israelites. Uh, none of us are in danger of getting hauled off to Canada and uh, supporting their economy. So, um, I lived in Canada for six years. So those of you that are chuckling, don't chuckle. Canada is a great country, right? But we're not in—we're not in danger of getting hauled off there. But I would venture to say that there are times when you have felt what it feels like to be hopeless. Maybe specifically in your relationships. Have you ever been in a marriage? where it begins with love. Then it moves on to maybe a little bit of anger and hostility towards one another. But you know that there's a phase after that, don't you? It's just apathy. It's where hope has been cut off, where you have no hope in that relationship any longer. You're just going through the motions day by day. Maybe you even say, I'm just doing this for the kids. Maybe it's with your family members. You've felt those relationships start to strain and eventually pull apart and then eventually it's just hopeless. Grudges set in, anger sets in, maybe sometimes for years. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, children and parents that have not talked for year upon year, sometimes a lifetime, right? Sometimes it literally takes a deathbed for us to talk to some of our loved ones in our lives. And so you have felt, we have felt, I have felt in a, my relationships in our relationships, what it feels like to exist in this place of status or stasis, right? Where hope is cut off and you kind of sometimes wish the relationship would just die, but it doesn't because you're so intertwined and so you just keep moving forward, but it's without hope, it's without joy, it's without love. And so I think if you can glean a little bit of that, we can understand how those Israelites felt at that time. I think we can understand why they needed to hear a message of hope and of joy and of life from Ezekiel at this moment because where they were at was not a good place. Right? So that's where the good news comes in for us here today. That's the good news that Ezekiel was able to preach to his people. That's the good news that we get to hear about here today as well. Uh, this is the Colorado River. I'm not sure what section this is uh, but obviously all of you know Colorado River. and You know how it gives life to lots and lots of people, including us, right? Uh, I mentioned I grew up in western Colorado in Grand Junction. Uh, they had a naming committee for Grand Junction. They said, what are we going to name this city? Well, the Colorado River meets here and the Gunnison River meets meet here. What should we call it? Let's call it Grand Junction. So, No, I don't think they had a meeting. I don't know how it came about. But I was thinking this is not the most clever of names, but if you go to Grand Junction um, and in lots of parts of Colorado, if it's not irrigated, it is dead, right? And you can fly over and you can see exactly where the irrigation stops and death begins to rain. And so without water, death rains. Water gives life. We know this to be true of the Colorado River. Colorado River uh, feeds and gives life to more than 40 million people down the way, right? This is a little bit of picture of the Colorado River Basin and where it ends up. You can see it it goes all the way down to Baja, California, the Sea of Cortez there, right? Or at least it did once. In the 1930s, and many of you maybe know this, uh, all the states along the Colorado River decided that they were going to divvy up the life-giving water of the Colorado and each, each state was going to be allocated certain amounts of that water. So this happened in the 1930s kind of laid it out. Well, since about the 1960s, the Colorado River has ceased reaching the Sea of Cortez. Do you know why? Because we're drinking it all up, right? Because we're using it, right? All the way along the way, and I'm not saying Colorado, but let's blame other states. We'll say Utah and Arizona, and most importantly, California, right? They're just using it up, right? So, um, but, but since the 1960s, the Colorado River has not reached the Sea of Cortez. There's not enough water to go around, right? It happened once in 1998 when an El Nino storm came through and just like deluged water and it actually made it all the way down. And then one other time where they released a bunch of dams and did kind of a water surge and it actually did reach all the way to the Sea of Cortez. But since the 1960s, in large part, that water never even reaches the Sea of Cortez. It simply doesn't make it. And so that has given rise to a couple of really interesting kind of Colorado Western terms. They'll talk about wet water, and they'll talk about paper water, okay? Wet water is the kind of water we can drink and water our crops with and actually gives life. Paper water doesn't do that. Paper water is the water that you have allocated in a treaty or on paper, but it is non-existent. It doesn't give life. You don't have any access to it because the Colorado River, the actual water is no longer there. I think it's a pretty good illustration for the life that we have in Christ. The life that Ezekiel brought to those Israelites and the life that you guys have, that we have as believers. We have wet water, not paper water. Not self-help books, not, not convenient ways to live a better life, but we have wet water. That wet water is what we have in Christ. It is life-giving water. It forgives sins. It restores hope and allows us to live our life with hope, being able to travel through desolate, desperate times, knowing that at the end of it, we have eternal life in Christ. That's the message that Ezekiel brought to uh, the people of Israel. Seven times in the 14 verses that we just read, he uses this word prophesy and we think this is like a churchy word and it's kind of fancy and all it simply means is that you are speaking the words of someone else. So God says to Ezekiel seven times in 14 verses, prophesy. Why do you you think he would say that? Because that's where life came from. Because that's what those Israelites needed to hear because life comes from through and from God's word, right? You have that same message. Message of Christ, right? Prophesy the word of God, the Bible that you are able to take into your life and apply in your life. And if that Bible ever starts to feel too much like paper water, like just academic words in a leather-bound book, then all we need to look to And all you need to look to is look to Christ. Because Jesus was the physical manifestation of that word. Jesus is God looking at us and seeing our desolate, desert, twisted world, twisted lives and saying, I won't have it. I'm going to insert myself into their lives so that they would have hope so that they can live life with hope and with life and knowing that their sins are forgiven and knowing that no matter how difficult their relationships get or how difficult this life becomes, that they have hope and that they have a future and that they have a future in me. That's why God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to say that. That's the same message that you and I have here this morning. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. That is a life-giving message. Not paper water, wet water. That really brings life. Now, what does that mean for us in our daily living, right? Ezekiel gives a little more insight. He says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel delivered life-giving water, words, to those people of Israel. He was trying to restore their hope, Right? Sins are forgiven. That Things are difficult now, but you have hope and you have a future. The very same thing is true for us. And life didn't instantly get awesome for the Israelites at that time. Uh, they weren't instantly sent back to Jerusalem and restored to the land that they were at. Uh, they weren't given back their jobs. In fact, for 70 years, they would have to toil and labor as slaves in a foreign country. And yet, Ezekiel was reminding them that they had hope. The same is true for you and I. Some of you might be in a relationship here this morning that feels as though it's, it's in the desert, uh, feels as though it may be on the verge of death, but I'm here to tell you that in Christ, that relationship has hope. Some of you may be here this morning feeling as though uh, you're, you're in maybe that, that area of stasis, that area of apathy, I'm here to tell you you can have hope. In fact, Ezekiel to some degree is here to tell you to wake up to remember the hope that we have in Christ and that your sins are forgiven. That Jesus came for broken people in a broken world. Death produces death, but life produces life. I think that's important for us to remember as believers, right? If our world, if your church, if your families, if your relationships, if your community wants to have wet water in real life, it's going to come through you. Because guess what? Life produces life, This is probably a pretty good shot of the life of those trees in the desert that is kind of at their front door. But maybe it's a good illustration for us as well as you leave here this morning. God has created faith in your hearts. You know the hope that you have. And it's your privilege, it's your honor to be able to share that life with the people in your lives and within your communities. Only life can end the cycle of anger and retribution. Only life can raise hearts from death to life. And only Christ can do that. Pray the Lord blesses you and your ministry here at CVL, or at CVL, at Eternal Rock. I've got to remember which location I'm at. Um, and maybe that's a good going away reminder for all of you. Uh, You may or may not know this, and some of you are probably guests here this morning, uh, but Eternal Rock was one of the first missions, new missions on the front range. Uh, One of the first new missions that made made it their priority. You made it your priority to share life, for life to produce life. And that's why you're here today. That's why you have a building project that's almost done. But guess what? There's others that have watched you. There's three more missions that have started since Eternal Rock was founded and began. Three more young missions that get to look to you as people of life, as people that have dedicated themselves to a church and to a community and to bringing life to that community. So I pray the Lord's blessings on your work here. Keep it up. Uh, keep working hard. Keep bringing that life-giving message to your community. Um, and, and we'll keep you all in our prayers. Amen. Amen.